Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, it's a joy to be with you. Uh, I'm not sick, which is a blessing from God, uh, given that pretty much everybody has been sick uh, in our world, but I'm very, very tired. Uh, I, I, I'm going home to Australia tomorrow for leave, and I think there's something about the body that just starts to realise the end is nigh, uh, and so I'm like the marathon runner crawling over the finish line. So, uh, uh, I will pray for myself, you can pray for me too, that I'm firing on all cylinders at least for the next hour or so, uh, uh, so that we can get this talk done uh, in a way that uh, is clarifying and helpful, uh, and in a way that I don't stick my foot in any landmines and say the wrong thing. So, let's start by praying. Father in heaven, we come before you, and Lord, we thank you for the wisdom that is contained in your word once again. Uh, Lord, we acknowledge that we are uh, frail and, and weak people, and Father, we are uh, plagued by sin and ignorance, and Lord, we uh, acknowledge that we, are, we so fall short in the implementation of what you teach us. Uh, and so, Father, we pray that this morning that you would open our minds, uh, give us teach, uh, and Father, help us by your Spirit uh, to receive truth. Uh, Father, help us to be changed by it, by the power of your Spirit. Uh, and Father, we pray that you would help us also to alter our lives in response to it. Uh, that you would renew our thinking and therefore renew the way we live and the way our mind drives our actions. Uh, Lord, we do ask this, uh, praying also that all that is said would be glorifying and honouring to you, truthful to your word and what is written here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, I would like to turn to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel. Uh, the topic, as you've seen today, is living in Babylon. Uh, that's a general topic that I use to cover uh, a range of talks that I uh, do on the theme, the broad theme of Babylon. Um, let me explain that by just pointing out that in the Bible, uh, that word Babylon is used in two ways. Uh, the first way it is used is to refer, obviously, to the actual city or empire called Babylon. Uh, and we read about that, for example, in Daniel's day. That is that pagan culture, empire and system that came along and swallowed up God's people, uh, conquered Jerusalem and all of its institutions and system of worship and culture that have been set up by God himself and pulled God's people out of that environment and out of that context to instead be faced with the task of living for him inside a pagan culture, inside a system of pagan institutions uh, and indeed a culture that was so often opposed to what they believed and opposed to the living God. Now, you can see immediate parallels, uh, lessons from the life of Daniel. Uh, this is something that the Western world is going through right now in a slightly different sense. There is a great wave of cultural change that is sweeping the West. Uh, I'm from Australia. It's significantly more advanced over there than it is, say, here in Kentucky. Uh, but, um, you know, I feel almost like uh, I'm, I'm seeing it all over again. Uh, the same wave is here. It's in the United Kingdom, it's in Canada. Uh, and the, the thing is that uh, there are these cultures that knew better, as, as is the judgment that's read to King Belshazzar in Daniel 5, that, that know about the living God, that know about the gospel, that are built with institutions that honour those things. Uh, really, nations like America and the United Kingdom that sent missionaries to the world, that raised up Christian statesmen and all this kind of thing. But what's happening? There's a wave of change that's, that's among us, that's coming. Uh, that's happening. Uh, and it's re-engineering the foundations uh, of what we believe and how we act. It's undermining the 
Christianity of institutions, it's undermining churches and it's undermining faithful Christian witness and the Word of God. Uh, And so there's lessons here for Daniel being forced to live faithfully for God in a pagan system. And that's exactly where God's people are headed now in the West if they're not already there. Uh, So lots of lessons. And so when I talk about Babylon, uh, when the Bible talks about Babylon, it speaks of that actual Babylon that did that. But it then also uses it sometimes as kind of a metaphor or a symbol of the same thing when it happens in other places or similar kinds of empires and pagan powers. So, for example, Nineveh is called Babylon in one place. Tyre is called Babylon in one place. Uh, Peter uses a lot of Babylonian imagery when he, refer- when he speaks to Christians who are dispersed through the Roman Empire. So there seems to be a hint there that Rome is another kind of Babylon system. He talks about the fiery trial that's going to come upon them. He t- addresses them as those in exile. You know, he's using all this Babylon uh, imagery. And then, of course, in Revelation, there's another Babylon. And I'm <laughs> I'm not going to get into where that might be, what that might be this morning. I'm not going to upset anyone's views on on that. Uh, But it is there, the same thing. Um, So when I talk about Babylon, I am sometimes referring to it in the general sense. God opposing systems of culture and power. Because the Bible uses the word that way sometimes as well. Um, And with that contextual point, let us read about uh, something that happened to Daniel, who was living for God in a pagan time a pagan empire, a pagan culture. Uh, Something happened to him in a vision in Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to read all about it. I am going to actually read the whole chapter. Um, So Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, now Belshazzar was the last king of Babylon before it fell to the Medo-Persian empire. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it and had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, 
There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Let me just go down. I won't read the whole thing. Um, let me just drop down a minute because then Daniel inquires specifically about this little horn. Uh, and let me read the section where that is described in verse 23. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. This is the verse I'm interested in. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my colour changed but I kept the matter in my heart. Okay. So I want to make an interpretative point first, just to explain what I am going to be talking about and what I'm not going to be talking about. Um, I would like this morning with some of the principles that are conveyed here. Um, I'm not going to get into very specific application of who is the little horn, what is the little horn, what are the ten, what are the three. I'm not going to go into that kind of analysis of what we've just read. I'm much more interested in some of the general principles for life in the kingdoms of this world that are conveyed by this revealed dual reality that is all around us. The perspective of living on earth and the perspective from heaven. The fact that God is in control of the one and there are certain things happening that perplex and overwhelm us in the other. Um, let me give you an example. Uh, so early on in the week with the Catalyst program, we spoke about the city of Babel, Genesis chapter 11. And we learned there about a whole lot of principles uh, that were at play in the city of Babel. It was founded on human pride. Come, let us make a name for ourselves, for example. Uh, it was uh, founded in a, a spirit of rebellion because God had told them to spread out, but they said, you know, let us gather together for security. There was an anxiety that was there. They were trying to protect themselves without God, and it ended. It was judged uh, by God for certain reasons, and we learned a lot from the city of Babel. Now, none of us actually thought we were living in the city of Babel. None of us actually thought it was thousands of years ago, but God's word is always a word to every generation. There's always a principle. There's always a lesson to be learned for today. And the city of Babel is a great lesson of how human powers defy God and, and how to understand them. 
Um, and it was the same when we went and looked at some of the earlier chapters of Daniel. Uh, none of us actually thought that we are really truly exiles living in Babylon, but man, we learned a lot about how to live in Babylon-style powers, right? And that's the sort of approach I'm going to take here, and I've got to be careful to make sure that I am actually extracting the principles um, that are really there, uh, which are applicable to us today. Um, no doubt there is ultimate final fulfillment of many of these things. But you see often in the Bible uh, that whenever we get this sort of peek behind the veil uh, into things that are happening in the eternal world, you get very similar principles at play. And we're going to learn from those. Um, so um, that is my uh, sort of opening caveat, if I could put it that way, on the way we're going to interpret this. And it'll become clear as we go through. So verse 1. It says in verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and the visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Now, notice something. This vision that Daniel gets is in the first year of Belshazzar. So it is, and it, and it begins, it seems, with a revelation of what's broadly happening in relation to empires, including the Babylonian Empire. And so he gets this, this, this vision uh, at a time when he's looking at uh, his world uh, and he's no doubt wondering about it and trying to explain it. And then he gets a vision of another world that is contemporaneous, that is at the same time as the world that he can see. And so it's important for us to know that you can see history from two standpoints. One standpoint is the standpoint that we have from earth of that which is seen by us. That's one way that we, that's the way we experience history. But there's another angle, there's another perspective, another standpoint from which history can be seen. And that is the standpoint from heaven, from the eternal realm, eternal reality. And you see this sort of view into the other side, view into the eternal perspective at several times in the bioapocalyptic kind of literature. But what's happening here is that the first half of Daniel is history unfolding for the people of God in that seen reality, that, that reality that we see and perceive with our eyes and our senses. Then the second half of Daniel starts talking a lot more about what's happening in history, not necessarily from Daniel's standpoint, but from heaven's standpoint with that eternal view, a heavenly perspective. Um, and for us to see that heavenly perspective, that spiritual angle on how history is unfolding and being orchestrated, we need to have that kind of um, unveiling. Daniel needs to have a vision. He needs to be enabled to see beyond into what's happening in the eternal realm of heaven. Um, and we see through the book of Daniel that this, this other reality... This heavenly reality is always there. Um, for example, they're thrown into a fiery furnace. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fiery furnace and he says, I see a fourth man in the fire. I see one like a son of man. What's going on? That, that other reality breaks through and is seen and experienced and encountered in Babylon. And it's a work of God. Because God is at work behind the scenes, always bringing to bear his power and bringing to bear the work of that world onto this world to order it according to his purposes. Uh, 
Uh, and there's a glimpse of it right there in the fiery furnace. Or Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. Uh, and what happens? He survives. Why? The angel of the Lord came and shut the lion's mouths. Um, again, that second standpoint, that second reality, which is at exactly the same time, suddenly breaks into Daniel's Babylon experience. And he sees that God is at work behind the scenes right there. Uh, or uh, another example is when he prays and he gets no answer to his prayer for some weeks. Uh, and what happens? Suddenly, um, the angel of the Lord Gabriel shows up and says, well, we were trying to answer your prayer, but I was delayed because I was waging war with the prince of Persia. Uh, but now I'm here and God heard you. And you get a glimpse now into the fact that um, not only is uh, God at work right there all the time in that unseen world, but you get this revelation that there's a great battle taking place in that unseen world. There's a, there's a complex system of work taking place in the heavenly world, in the heavenly realm, in eternal realms on our behalf. God is hearing, God is acting, and of course we can't see all that God is doing, but he is working on our behalf. Um, now, I said, you know, we live in a very sort of Babylon, Babylonish context today. Uh, we are those who live in uh, a culture that is increasingly uh, showing the same attributes that Babylon showed. It's pride, it's making of the self great. Uh, it's rebellion, it's taking of that, the passions and the desires of the self and rebelling against God. I mean, the ultimate example, as we used in a talk the other day, is the pride movement. Uh, you look at yourself, you make yourself great, you make it the guiding light for your life, you pursue it, you chase after it, you follow it, even if it defies God, rebels against God. That's really the spirit of the age. Um, and that's, of course, what was happening at the city of Babel, make the self great, rebel against God. It's a Babylon kind of culture. And, you know, it doesn't matter where God's people are in the world. It doesn't matter what culture they're living in. It doesn't matter what kind of anti-God system might be on them. We actually are the recipients of this same ministry that is taking place in the unseen realm to order things in the seen realm on our behalf. So Daniel gets this window into great power, a great power of God that is orchestrating all of history. And of course, he's seen flashes of it during his Babylon exile experience. Uh, you think of the Apostle John in Revelation. Um, he's there on the Lord's Day on the island of Patmos. And then all of a sudden, he hears a great voice behind him. And he turns around. And my goodness, what is he seeing? He's, he's seeing the other realm. He's seeing the other history. He's seeing the fact that, yes, he is on Patmos uh, for the, uh, the, the testimony of Jesus and the Word of God. He is in a sad and difficult circumstance. Life looks difficult and perplexing. Uh, there is tribulation and trouble and trial upon the church all around him. But what does he see? Right behind him, there the whole time, is the risen Lord Jesus Christ, bigger than ever, more powerful than ever, and at work for his church. Uh, and he gets this glimpse of what's really going on. You know, it's a great risk in the Christian life that we are overwhelmed by the seen circumstances that are around us. 
uh, that we might look, say, particularly at broad cultural changes and, and we, we lament and we're defeated and we're miserable about it. Make no mistake, right behind you is the risen Lord Jesus Christ, bigger than ever, more powerful than ever, and at work for his church. Um, that's, and, and it's interesting, I heard one preacher talking about this. And he says, it's a great lesson, uh, and he, he phrased it like this. He said, you know, he said, eternity is at your elbow. Uh, he said, you know, it's not just that eternity is all the way out there in the future and all the way back there in the past. Uh, eternity is, 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 is God's dwelling place. Um, of course, he's here with us as well, but he is the one who inhabits eternity, says the prophet Isaiah. Uh, and that reality is always there. Uh, and the eternal life we receive is, is now and in the future. It's not just speaking of future and past. It's talking about the greater reality of God himself. Uh, and it's not just off in the future. It's not just back in the past. It's at your elbow. It's right here. It's all around. There are angels working. There is God at work. Uh, Christ is on his throne now. And there is a great complex of work taking place all around us. Another example is uh, Elisha. This is a great one. Um, Elisha uh, is, it says, I'll read it, 2 Kings six fifteen. It says, when the servant of the man of God, that's Elisha's servant, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. And he's about to get one of these experiences where he sees what's right there at his elbow all along. And uh, so the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. Those that are for, for us or those that are with us are more than those who are with them. Uh, one of the titles of God in the Bible is the Lord of hosts, uh, the Lord of angel armies. Uh, he is a God who commands an unseen complex of angel armies and spiritual battles. Perhaps even more, I mean, you think of the ludicrous complexity of the universe from uh, the makeup stars and uh, the currents and powers that make up orbits to the, you know, the, the delicacy of an insect. You think of how complex this world is. How much, how complex is the unseen world? Uh, it's a whole other complex of activity of God where he is orchestrating all things there to bring to bear on this reality to achieve his will. Um, Hebrews 1.14 makes this point. It says of these angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Um, that's us. This is a ministry of the angelic realm um, that is their work. Uh, and it's, a, it's, it's an extraordinary thing to consider. I mean, again, what Elisha said, those that are for us are more than those that are against us. Uh, angel armies are for us. Uh, angel armies are sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And through that great complex of work and the effect that it has on our world... Uh, we see that God is able, through his, the miracle of his sovereignty, to bring all things according to the counsel of his will, to work all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. I find that incredible. 
Um, and you often see people in Scripture getting little insights into this. Uh, you think of someone like Joseph in his life, and you think of the highs and the lows he went through, you know, a decade in prison, sold into slavery in a strange land, called Egypt the land of my affliction, uh, the ups and the downs and the complexities of life. Uh, and what does he do? He looks back and he says, well, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. God was orchestrating all things for good all the way along. It was right there all the time. His work never ceased. Um, the miracle of God's sovereignty is that no matter what happens, good comes. And it is the ministry of these angelic, the angelic world that is so crucial in achieving that uh, objective and that goal. Um, you know, I always thank God, uh, I make a point of it now, for the work that he has done today that I haven't seen. Uh, the work that he's done today that I just know nothing about. You know, sometimes you get little insights. Ken Ham was giving his testimony the other day to uh, the Catalyst Group. And he just, he was talking about the very beginnings of his ministry and how that the Lord was putting a burden on him about the evolutionary naturalism issue. Uh, and how that he was looking for resources and trying to work out, you know, uh, what is the truth about this? How can we answer this? Uh, and he, there was really no books at the time. Uh, it was very, very rare to find a book on this issue. Uh, but there was one called The Flood of Noah's Day, a little book. Uh, and he was trying to find it. Uh, and he went to a local uh, Christian bookstore and he said to them, do you have this book, The Flood of Noah's Day? And the lady said, you wouldn't believe it, but we've actually got one of this obscure book. Uh, and so he gave it to Ken. And that really was the beginning of something when he got that book in his hands and read that book. One of the only books uh, at the time that was taking the view that that, that Scripture was to be believed and uh, could oppose the evolutionary naturalistic idea. He met the lady who sold him that book decades later. And she said, it's inexplicable, but she said, um, my husband um, said to me before you came in to get that book that God had placed a specific burden on his heart that he had to stock one of those books in particular. Um, and so he did. And we had it in the shop for that reason. And he said, no, we've got to have it. We've got to keep it. Uh, and of course, Ken M comes along and he finds this very book that starts a journey. You know, there is an incredible number of things going on that we don't know about, from small to great. I remember, I mean, one of the most um, full-on things that ever happened to me was, um, uh, I remember... Um, I remember in Australia one evening, uh, I, I was actually um, a little perturbed by the fact that I was sort of had been working in a Christian context for a while. And I was thinking, you know, I'm speaking a lot, I'm doing a lot of events, but I'm not having as many interactions one-on-one -on -one with people uh, as I would like in terms of witnessing individually to people. Uh, and so I prayed about that and said, Lord, give me a chance to, you know, witness to somebody on a personal level, someone who doesn't know who I am, who, you know, or anything like that. And, uh, some kind of some kind of uh, situation like that. Anyway, uh, I suddenly had this urge for some reason. I thought, you know what, I'd love to go for a walk. Um, and I just had this desire to get up and go out. It was 9 o'clock at night, it was raining and it was cold. Uh, so I put my rain jacket on and I just went out for a walk. And I started wandering and I wandered off the path. And, you know, you wouldn't believe it. I came across a man who was just about to commit suicide. He was about to hang himself. Uh, he'd set it all up, he was standing on the stool, he was ready to go. Uh, and I walked over a hill and there he was. And of course, what do you do in that situation? Um, you, you say a quick prayer and you walk up to him and say, hello, how are you doing? Uh, and we engage in conversation. 
Uh, and he was very, very disappointed that I was there. But uh, I sort of thought, well, you know, it's a moment like this when you've got one option. I mean, what are you going to talk about? Uh, of course, I just said to him, have you thought about God by any chance? What do you think about God? And it opened a conversation. And we sat on the top of a hill in the middle of the bush, as we'd say in Australia, until two o'clock in the morning. Uh, and you know something I realized as I was talking to him for the first two hours, I couldn't get through to him. I couldn't get a response out of him. He was dark. He was down. He was staring at the ground. He was just grunting. He was black. And there was like an option there. I could, there was something just I couldn't get through. And, we, and he said to me, you need to get out of here and all this. I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, and then after two hours, I decided nothing's working. And so I said, you know, um, I referred to the fact that he told me something. He had a child. And so I started laying into him, telling him what a wretched sinner he was, telling him that, you know, he has a child in this world and how dare he. And <laughs> I just had no other choice. Uh, and so I went so hard at this guy, telling him off for his sin. And you know what? That was the moment when all of a sudden it was like he woke up. Uh, and whatever that blackness was, it just disappeared. And he suddenly said, you're right. That's fair enough. I get it. Uh, and we ended up having the most constructive conversation for the next two hours. Uh, now, I don't recommend that necessarily as good evangelism, but, um, you know, when you're desperate, what else you got to do? Uh, and the reason I go through that is just to say what hit me after that evening was there was a battle for that man's soul that night. Something was going on. He was being demonically oppressed. And I felt it and I knew it. And he was in a black, black, dark place. Uh, and then it lifted and went away. Uh, you don't know what's going on in the unseen world. We must thank God for that unseen ministry that is all around us, orchestrating little things like people in book, getting books in bookstores, uh, you know, um, randomly going for a walk in the bush at night. Uh, whatever it is that's taken you, uh, that, that's led you here this morning, God is at work. Um, the God of the unseen work. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. To those who are called according to his purposes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, it's a great encouragement, a great encouragement. The seen world is one thing, but if we could get an unseen revelation, we'd be greatly encouraged. Um, verse 2, don't worry, I won't go through every individual verse. Um, just a few of them. Uh, verse 2. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came up out of the sea. And the interpretation of that is actually given to us in verse 17, so that's very helpful. Uh, verse 17 says that, regarding the beasts in the sea, that the beasts are kings, and says they are arising out of the earth. And so that's the sea. The sea is the earth, the beasts are the kings. Great. And that's normal. This, the great sea, the sea is very often the earth or the mass of humanity and humankind, in prophecy. Um, and it is therefore humanity, it's the world that is throwing up these beasts. Humanity is producing monsters. So that's one thing. But then, of course, there's the four winds of heaven that are blowing on this great sea, which is the mass of humanity, which are throwing up these beasts, these monsters. Um, and you say, well, what are the four winds of heaven? Well, if you go and do a Bible search for four winds, or winds of heaven, uh, you'll very quickly see what that's talking about. Uh, over and over and over and over again, 
Those winds of heaven are used to refer to the activity of God, the moving of God, God's power. It's interesting. Why are monsters being thrown up by the mass of humanity, by the earth? Monsters are being thrown up because God is at work. An extraordinary thought. It is the work of God on the earth that has created a Belshazzar. That has, now, God hasn't made them directly. What I mean is that the response to God's work by evil is to raise up opposition, is to raise up those who oppose. And these beasts come in two broad forms, those that are, well, beastly, um, those that are violent, those that are, um, are, are, are rapacious, those that are destroying and killing. Uh, but also the beasts come in a different, um, a different sort, which is that those that are uh, the one that is the little horn. What's the thing about that? It's blasphemous. It's speaking great things. It's saying things against the Most High. It's arrogant. It's proud. And so there's pride and there's um, beastliness. And so these things are being thrown up by the mass of humanity. Um, you know, I want to focus in though on the fact that uh, these are rising in response to God's activity. Uh, this is an important lesson. You, you, you always will find that wherever God is at work, Satan is at work in reply. Always. It's a very important lesson. You, you think of Daniel. Daniel was sent to the lion's den. Let's go back to that example. Why was he sent to the lion's den? Do you know, it was a wicked response. It was a stirring of evil opposition against him because... He was so faithfully living the ordinary Christian life, if I could put it that way. Uh, he was praying three times a day in his window and was seen to be doing as such. He was excellent in his work, which is a Christian virtue, by the way. Uh, and he was seen to be excellent in his work. He was blameless in his conduct. And everybody knew that he was blameless, a good man who could not be turned away uh, after, uh, after some moral failure. Um, this is the kind of guy that he was. And so what happens? Evil men are stirred up in response to this guy's testimony and this guy's witness. Or you can consider Job. It's interesting. What did Job do wrong? Nothing. Satan was, Satan was stirred up against Job simply because Job was living a righteous life, fearing God and turning away from evil. That incited Satan against him. Just that righteous life. Uh, and so it goes on. I mean, uh, wherever, and then whenever God is at work broadly, like for example, when the Hebrews are getting very strong in slavery, what happens? Well, evil is stirred up to try and stop it. And so Pharaoh sends out this decree that all these baby boys should be killed. Uh, but then, of course, what happens? You know, God, through his bringing to bear his power on this world, through all his activity behind the scenes, he actually uses that very decree as the means by which Moses gets into Pharaoh's household and releases uh, his people. It's extraordinary. Um, or, indeed, it's the same. Um, you think of the explosion of demonic activity when Jesus came. Uh, you think of when Christ walked the earth. Uh, there were demons under every bush. Uh, there was Satan tempting him in the wilderness. There was, they were drawn out to that man, to the, to, to the Lord Jesus Christ, um, because they knew that, a, that something, a work of God, was taking place. Um, if you want to do a work for God in this world, there will be opposition. Never forget that. Um, you know, I, I wonder sometimes, uh, 
and this is for the best of reasons, but you can hear testimonies of people who have done great things for God. Uh, and the testimonies always focus on the good stuff. They always focus on, and we did this amazing thing, and then God enables to do that amazing thing. And there was this other huge accomplishment. But what you don't know is that at every stage along the way, there was the, the darkest of nights, the deepest of sorrows, the most challenging of oppositions. Uh, you know, there was stuff that happened all along the way that nearly, that nearly broke that person. But of course, they don't say that because there's also usually good reasons why it's hard to say that uh, and why it's hard to talk about those things. Uh, but you can be sure that wherever God is at work, there is always opposition. We must never forget that. Um, if you are doing a work for God, if the four winds of heaven are blowing, if God's work is, 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 is taking place in the world and you're a part of that, as Daniel was, right? Uh, if you're a part of that, beasts and blasphemers will oppose you. Arrogant people and uh, nefarious people will oppose you. Uh, that's just the way it's going to be. Um, but though trouble will come, though trials will come, the great principle we learn is that despite whatever it is, um, God's work comes through it in the end. Uh, you think, for example, again, the lion's den. Those people are incited against Daniel. Uh, the activity of God raises up opposition. But what's the outcome of that? There's a trial and Daniel goes through that trial, that trouble. Uh, and then at the end of it, King Darius says, let everyone worship the God of Daniel. A great testimony is, is seen through Daniel's trouble, Daniel's tribulation. Uh, you know, the, the, the fiery furnace again, there's a fourth man in the fire, uh, Nebuchadnezzar kind of has a bit of a false start in terms of some sort of conversion sort of thing, uh, doesn't quite come through, goes, becomes a beast and then later on it all works out, but it's part of God's work in relation to that man and who knows how many others not mentioned in the story. Um, God's work comes through the trouble if we persevere. Uh, it's a really important principle. Uh, that trial will yield God's work. In fact, here's a phrase that I often use, God works in the fires. Uh, that's very often when God's greatest work is done because you'll find that when it's a fiery furnace moment, the testimony of God's people in that moment is incredibly visible and incredibly strong. Uh, and God uses that in very powerful ways. Um, and I found this to be a rhythm of life. Um, it is a rhythm of life that, yes... That, that some good thing begins to happen, some work of God starts, and I think most pastors probably will resonate with this, uh, as, you know, some good thing begins, and then it's not long before some awful opposition, some terrible trouble starts, uh, something which threatens to blow the whole thing up, bring it all down, destroy it. Uh, and of course, in the midst of that conflict, uh, what happens? You have to persevere. You have to go through some difficult things. And then on the other side... It's defeated and another great work takes place. I've seen that to be a great rhythm in life. Uh, and I think everybody who does a work for God in their life sees that rhythm. Uh, and God, by his grace, gives us reprieve, but then it comes back. <laughs> and then we get reprieve and then it comes back. Uh, it's the way it is. Um, and there's an ultimate example of this principle, by the way. Uh, and it is, it is Jesus himself. Uh, you think when he came, opposition was stirred up. And what did he do? He went through a trial. Well, that's an understatement, right? He, the worst that Satan could do to Jesus was done to him. Uh, nothing worse was ever done in all of human history. 
I'd be up there with the fall as the two worst things that were ever done. But what happened through that shocking and horrible trial and the death of Christ, when all of humanity killed the Son of God, uh, you know what happened? God's greatest work for all of history came out of that. Uh, there's a great principle there. And, you know, it's, we have to trust that the God of the unseen realm is at work. Because if we rely simply on what we can see, we just won't see it. Uh, can you, I mean, no wonder the disciples all thought it was over when Jesus died. Uh, because from their perspective, what they could see, that the wisdom of God is, you know, uh, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, says Paul rhetorically. Uh, the weakness of God is stronger than men. We'll never, we'll never know the mind of the Lord. We'll never understand how he's bringing his purposes to pass. And he asks us to mysteriously walk through things that we don't understand, that look like this isn't the way we would do it. Uh, but nonetheless, his work comes through. And that's the miracle of his sovereignty. Um, it really is. But I, I want to give us a warning. How foolish we are when we take an appeasement strategy. I mean, there's a lot of people in the world right now that are looking at a little bit of rising hostility from the culture. And they're saying, well, okay, how can we change to appease the culture? This is the world we live in. You will never appease the culture. You will never appease the forces of evil. This is, this is a misunderstanding of the real battle that's taking place just behind the scenes, right at your elbow, if I could put it that way. There is a spiritual battle all around in an unseen world. Sometimes it flashes through to the scene and sometimes you wish it didn't. Sometimes you're glad it did. Um, we mustn't misunderstand that reality. It is not true that, oh, well, um, there is a way to say things that everybody's going to like, not going to get opposition from the culture if we're more winsome or kinder or more generous or if we're just great people. Daniel was a great person and they tried to kill him. <laughs> uh, or why did Jesus say, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake? Presumably because it's possible to be persecuted for righteousness sake and no other reason. Uh, an appeasement strategy is a foolish strategy. It completely misunderstands the nature of a world where when God works, evil rises in opposition. Um, but God prevails through that opposition. And it's not that we want the opposition always to go away. It's that we want the strength to stand in that opposition so that God's work can advance. That is the nature of our fallen world. Um, so that's the wind and the sea, the work of God, the response of evil. Let me just hone in a little bit on the, 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 the evil that is being talked about here. Um, there are these kings, these empires, these rulers, these powers that are coming up. And humanity will always throw up wicked powers, wicked rulers. Uh, that's humankind in sin. Uh, and some of them are these brutal beasts, rapacious and violent and fearsome. Uh, and some of them, well, then there's this one that's this horn, right? Uh, and the horn is really blasphemous, it's speaking great things, and it shall speak against God. Um, actually, I'm, you know, there are specific fulfillments of these beasts, by the way, but you will always see the same qualities present in human powers without God throughout the Bible. Uh, you go to Revelation and there's very similar imagery of beasts and so on. This is the recurring cycle of history and empires and in Babylon itself, you see both features. So God says to Habakkuk, when the Chaldeans are going to come and conquer Jerusalem, uh, he says, these are those whose own might is their God. And it says they are fearsome and they are dreadful and devouring men like the sand of the seashore. Uh, you know, those are the beasts. 
It's a beastly empire. But see, then on the last day of Babylon at Belshazzar's feast, when the writing comes on the wall, Daniel comes out and speaks to Belshazzar and tells him what he's done wrong. And he uses this phrase among his other phrases. He says, you have raised yourself up against the most high. And that's the quality that you see in this horn that's talking about a particularly blasphemous and arrogant power. Uh, And you see both in Babylon, both qualities. And you see both qualities all throughout history. You say, well, you know, uh, in the 20th century alone, what did Churchill call Hitler? A maniac of ferocious genius, he called him. Uh, He was a beast. Uh, But he was also proud, arrogant. Uh, Communism, a godless utopia. Uh, What did Khrushchev say? Uh, He said, we shall, when he, about the space program in the Soviet Union, he said, we shall reach heaven and topple God from his throne. Speak words against the most high. Um, What about today? Well, it's the same today. I mean, is the Chinese Communist Party not a fearsome beast? Uh, Is it not killing and destroying, devouring people? Um, Are there prison camps? Not exact evidence of this very thing. Are there persecution of the Christian church? Um, You have those sorts of powers around us. But what about the proud? See, this is the thing. We think, oh, well, we're in the West. Aren't we lucky? Aren't we fortunate? Aren't we blessed that we don't have these beasts ruling us? I tell you what, we've got some little horns ruling us, if I could put it that way. We have some blasphemous people, arrogant people, proud people who speak words against God. Uh, You know, there was a billboard uh, recently, um, you probably saw this, where Gavin Newsom advertised abortion in California and he used the words of Jesus to do so. Um, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Not speaking words against the Most High. Uh, If that's not um, speaking great things and arrogant things, I don't know what is. Uh, But this is really everywhere today. Uh, this is our sin today. It is that pride. Um, uh, I want to point something out. I was perplexing over verse 25. It says, He shall think to change the times and the law. He shall think to change the times and the law. And I thought, what does that mean? What's wrong with changing the law? Laws change all the time. It must be saying something more than that. And I thought, you know what this is actually saying? He shall think to change times and seasons and laws. It's really saying he shall think to change the natural law. Um, And I was very pleased to see that there's some very good Hebrew scholarship that agrees with me. uh, That that is really probably what this is getting at. Uh, It shall be an arrogance, a pridefulness that purports to change The natural laws, the laws that govern nature and God's creation. Now, that is our day. That is the day in which we live. Uh, Did not Obergefell and Hodges purport to change the natural law that governs creation? Of course it did. God said, one man, one woman, marriage. That's God's law. It's natural law. It's creation mandate. Uh, But we purport to change that very law. Um, Is it not the case that we live in a time, a culture that is characterized by the desire to erase so many other creation ordinances? We've talked about this at the Catalyst quite a bit. Uh, You think of the gender stuff. Uh, I mean, goodness me, uh, look at the room. Men and women 
It's the witness of the creator. It's the natural law of the universe. Male and female, he created them. And we live in this time where we purport to actually ignore that and write a new natural law that governs gender and that kind of thing. Uh, you'd be you know, seven feet tall uh, with hairy hands and lots of muscles, but you can be a woman. And it's, it's, it's actually a cultural thing. The powers that be are enforcing this. Uh, you know, why is it that every government and every government department and every major corporation thinks it's good business to fly the pride flag in Pride Month or to go for the rainbow logo? Why? Well, because that's the cultural system that we're in. Uh, that's the kind of power that's all around us today. Um, but it's the same, you know, we actually think here's a, here's a time and a season we think we can change. We think we can change the time and the season of the death of the... Well, actually, we think we can change the nature of seasons, and we think we can change the time of the death of the planet. I mean, there is an ultimate hubris and arrogance. I was pointing out before that, the, you know, the climate's affected by things like the sun. I mean, what authority does man have over the sun? I mean, we're in this state of madness where we've got so big for our boots and so drunk on our own ability to civilize ourselves and, and accrue power and wealth to ourselves that we really think we are in control of the ultimate destiny of this world. That's God's control. That's God's ultimate destiny. You know, we talked about behind the scenes right now, there's a work taking place to lead us to the ultimate destiny that God has set. Uh, but we want to pretend that that complex of... Uh, things that God is all-powerfully orchestrating is something that we can overrule. Um, we see this in so many places. I mean, the ultimate example is that phrase, which I, I don't know whether it was invented by Oprah, academic, to go back and look at where this comes from, but the my truth thing. My truth. Uh, what arrogance against, what blasphemy against God, who is the sole truth author, the sole truth giver. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All truth comes from him. We submit to it or rebel against it. Uh, to say my truth as if I somehow am that author uh, is unbelievably um, proud, speaking against the Most High. Or again, you know, a, a more sort of a, a slighter version of that. Um, we did, I did what was right for me. That's risky because you're not the author of righteousness either, just as you're not the author of truth. None of us should seek to do what's right for us. We should always seek to do what's right. Uh, and that's from God, not from the self. Um, we live in a very proud time, a time when people have forgotten that they've been created from the dust as mere creatures, a time when people have forgotten that um, actually uh, we are ignorant and lacking in knowledge, the kind of knowledge that is necessary to govern these things, and that when we puff ourselves up and seek to seize control of them, we only bring misery and destruction. Um, it's in the pro-life debate as well. Uh, we want authority over life based on how we feel about it. Um, this is purporting to change natural laws. This is the arrogance that we see in our time. Um, and also, this same power shall wear out the saints of the Most High, it says. Wear them out. Um, it's interesting. There's a few ways to do that. And I'm sure the ultimate fulfillment, and I'll just level with you, I don't know what the ultimate fulfillment of the little horn is. I'm just going to put my hand up and say, I just don't know. Uh, but maybe you do. Um, and that's amazing, but I don't. Uh, and 
with a little horn, right? The, in the ultimate fulfillment, I'm sure violence is entailed. You can just read it. It's rapacious. Um, but where we see arrogance in world powers in our day, that wearing out of the saints can take on a few different flavors. Um, that wearing out of the saints, uh, it can actually be, the word is really harassment, harassing the saints to, to wear them out, uh, to uh, cause them to give up. Uh, and, you know, we are worn out by lots of things. You know, people in our time are being worn out simply by the reproach of the world. Uh, they're being worn out by the unrelenting advance of woke politics and culture. They're being, and you know, do you know what? It's enough to make them compromise. It's enough to make them give up and stop standing firm on the Word of God and the Gospel. It's enough to erode Christian witness in the world. Uh, you know, I often think that people from history who had to suffer martyrdom and all that kind of thing must look on at us and think, you know, if they could look on at us, I don't know if they can, but if they could look on at us, how ridiculous they would think we are. Here are people who died for the cause of the truth, uh, but we're people who don't even want to put up with being unpopular, uh, who are worn out and worn down by the fact that we go into a workplace or we go into university and we're the only one who thinks what we think, and it causes a lot of people to give up. Um, We've forgotten that he is the Lord of hosts. We've forgotten that there is a definite plan and we've forgotten something else because you say, well, where's all this? Where is this world headed? When all this is ultimately fulfilled, where, where are we going to end up? Well, the section says, first of all, all this will only continue for a fixed time, for a very specific period. Um, God always has a confined time in view, always. Uh, but not only is it a confined and a fixed time, so the end is set, but also it will end in judgment. Um, that's what you do with this kind of world. Can I just... The world, you look at any prophecy, any apocalyptic literature, anything about the future or anything about what's going on, on the other, in the eternal realm right now, there's always beasts, always. That, that is always what's being thrown up to be powers in this world. Um, we're not going to change that. That is fundamentally the nature of this world. That won't end. Um, it is always the case that there is pride and arrogance coming from these same powers. We will not change that. It is always the case when, the, when God works in the world, and I pray he works through us, that there is evil opposition raised up in reply. That's the world we live in. This is a fallen world. This is a world that, um, that, that, that is lost in sin, and that is the impact of sin on the powers that be and the cultures we live in. What is God going to do with this world? Is he going to improve it? Is he going to give it a lick of paint? Is he going to find someone who's not so beastly and put them in charge, another sinner? No, he's going to judge it. And that's what this whole section says. It is destined for judgment. Uh, the thrones are set. The court is sitting. What it's saying is, don't worry, it's about to end. And it's going to end through judgment. That is how God will do his final work to bring all of this um, to an end. He's not going to uh, improve, he's going to end. It's a very important context piece. Uh, you know, I think we just need to be a little careful about it. Look, we've all got to do good in this world. We've all got to be a Christian witness wherever we are. And there is a responsibility piece and God can use it and God can do good things through it. But we will never fundamentally change the nature of the world we're in. Never. Only God can do that.
Um, okay, let me conclude. And by conclude, I mean a few minutes. Um, <laughs> by pointing something out. This judgment will come, and I'm trying to find the spot in my notes because I've been, I've been riffing for a while. Um, here we go. What will happen to such a world? It will be judged. And what we see... Um, what we see actually is that all along when that judgment comes, all along there was actually another kingdom. All along there was another king. And all along there was another citizenry. There was another group of people who actually were not just citizens of, say, Babylon or whatever country, but they had another citizenship as well. Uh, And Daniel sees behind the veil and he sees the beasts and he sees the horn and he sees the arrogance and he sees what's to come and he sees the trouble of his own time and he sees God working and he sees evil responding. But then what's the answer? He looks up and he suddenly sees thrones are placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Um, Ancient of Days, what does that mean? Eternal. You know, the characteristic of this world is that it goes like this. Powers come and powers go. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Cultures lift and cultures decline. Ours will too. It's just the way that it is. It's the world we live in. We're not going to fundamentally change the nature of the world. If God has decided that the West will fall, the West will fall. He sets up kings and he removes kings. I'm sorry, but it's just the reality. But see, there's a great hope. Because above it all, a throne that isn't going up and down, a throne that isn't ending and beginning, but is absolutely fixed and eternal and unchanging, exists. And he is constant from everlasting to everlasting. There is a kingdom where whatever we invest in that will never end. It will never be destroyed. Whatever we invest in this one will be destroyed and it will end in the judgment that is coming, that is set, as we, as we saw. This king, the Ancient of Days, is described in this way. His clothing was as white as snow And his hair of his head was like pure wool. And so here is one who is blameless, spotless, pure, who is not puffed up in pride, who is not wearing out the saints, who is not violent and brutal. Um, But also, it's interesting, it gives this this sort of discordant thing happens here where you, you get this slight softness that's introduced. He's got the hair of pure wool. Um, and I think that's intentional. It's, it's out of step with the, 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 the iron and the bones and the, and, the, and the crushing and the stamping. Because it's a little bit like that C.S. Lewis uh, lies. C.S. Lewis, yes, uh, where he says about God, he says, you know, uh, he is not safe, but he is good. And you actually see one who has a goodness to him, a desirability, a, a winsomeness, a... Uh, 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 those attributes we think of in his mercy, his love towards us, his graciousness. There's a, there's a softness that's brought into this vision of the Ancient of Days high on a throne. But at the same time, is he safe? No, because his throne has fi- was fiery flames and its wheels were burning fire and a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. So judgment and justice are coming from him. And, you know, that's good, by the way. Judgment and justice are good. A lot of people say, oh, how can a loving God judge, you know? Well, how can he not? I mean, are these beasts just blips on the radar of history or will they face their justice? Of course, the problem for us is if God is going to bring justice, 
If he's going to, you know, clear all the trash away, we better make sure we're not sitting in the trash can because we are. Uh, This is why God refrains from judging. Justice is good because it will purge evil and bring righteousness, but justice is fearful because we all deserve judgment. And that is why the next phrase is not just the Ancient of Days, but behold, one comes on the clouds of heaven. And this is our hope in judgment. Uh, The judgment is coming. The fire is there. It's issuing. The Ancient of Days has taken his seat. The books are open. The court sits in judgment. What hope is there for the kingdoms of this world? What hope is there for the people who live here? What hope is there for Daniel and his cohorts? Here's the hope. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And of course, to Daniel, this is an extraordinary thing to see. Because why is there a man, a son of man, that's the appearance, in heaven before the ancient of days? You can't do that. You will die. A man does not belong in that place. Uh, But of course, this is more than man. This is, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why when Jesus came, his favorite designation of himself was son of man. He was saying, I am that man, and I am the one who stood before the Ancient of Days, was presented before him, and to me was given a dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here is the other kingdom and the other king. Um, Here are the people who serve. There are people all around us who, yes, are citizens of this country, but are also citizens of this greater kingdom that rules the unseen and the seen, uh, that rules angel armies, that is doing a work through the citizens of this kingdom, even through trouble and tribulation. Um, Notice the quality, though. What is it that marks out a citizen of this kingdom? They serve him. They serve him. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And that's the test. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Nations rise and nations fall. Nothing's eternal except the everlasting kingdom of God. And those that are in it, those that are the subjects of the true and the risen king, serve him. Uh, You know, it is a great evidence of Christian faith that we actually experience an, in, an indebtedness, a sense of duty. Uh, I gave an illustration the other day where I made up a guy's name, Count von Zimmermann. Uh, that's actually very close to a real man's name, von Zinzendorf. Uh, and von Zinzendorf was the founder of the missionary movement that came out of the Moravian Brethren. And his testimony is an extraordinary thing. He was a young man and he was traveling in Europe and he went into an art gallery And he saw in that art gallery a painting of, I forget who the artist's name now, but it was a famous painting of the crucifixion. And it was called Behold the Man. Um, And there was an inscription under the painting. And it said this, All this I have done for thee, what have you done for me? And von Zinzendorf saw the painting as a young man, not a Christian. And he tells the account of how that he was transfixed by it. And he stood and stared at that painting for hours. And he actually had to be ushered out of the museum after closing time uh, because he was still there staring at the painting. And he said that was the moment when he realised what a debt he owed 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That was the moment when he realized that he had done nothing to serve him. He had done nothing in obedience to him, nothing to honor him, even though he had done all of that. And you know, the Christian is somebody who has that deep sense. All this he did for me, this son of man. That is why he is the son of man, because he became a man to do this for me, to go and reign. And we have that deep sense that there is a debt that we owe. There is a duty that we have to our true and our living king. Um, And perhaps I want to leave us with that thought. Um, If we are the citizens of that true kingdom of God, we see all around us what's happening, but we know that eternity is at our elbow. And we know that those of us who seek to do a work for God will face that opposition. But in so doing, the work for God will only advance if we stand and if we trust his power. And we do that. We are motivated to that. We persevere in that because we owe a debt, because we have a duty, and because we seek to serve him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the great king. Lord, we thank you for an ancient of days who is eternal from everlasting to everlasting, a throne that is fixed, that is set above all kingdoms and realms of this world. Father, we thank you that you are the God of great power, commanding the unseen uh, so that that unseen brings to bear your will upon what we see. Father, help us to live by faith, trusting that you are at work. Father, help us to uh, have fruitful work to do, uh, to persevere when there is opposition and challenge. But Lord, we pray that there would come a day Uh, when we will stand before the true King. And Father, we would have uh, those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, may we serve him. May we be those who are characterized by acting on the debt that we owe to Christ, the one who could call himself son of man, who came for our salvation and who lives and who reigns. Father, help us to be um, good citizens of the kingdom. And Father, we look forward to the inheritance that is there beyond this world, Uh, into the next. In Jesus' name. Amen.